Local reaction after the massive earthquake in Turkey and Syria. We are all affected emotionally because of this most devastating earthquake. I'm Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. A look at how first responders prepare for rescue when natural disasters happen. Time is of the essence in any type of disaster, not just an earthquake that we respond to to try to save lives. And what we're still learning about long COVID as restrictions ease. Plus, Black Comets returns to the World Beat Cultural Center. That's ahead on Midday Edition. You've been thinking about helping KPBS with a donation. Why not donate that extra car you no longer need? Pickup is free, and you're supporting KPBS Public Media. Here's how. Visit kpbs.careasy.org. The devastating earthquake and aftershocks in Turkey and Syria have now claimed more than 11,000 lives. The 7.8 magnitude earthquake struck early Monday morning. Some neighborhoods have been leveled. Many people are injured. Their homes are gone. Stories of dramatic rescues have trickled in, and rescuers continue to search for survivors in the rubble. Joining us to talk about that is Ali Karan, president of the House of Turkey in Balboa Park. Ali, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, you know, first, I just want to check in with you. How are you doing? Well, I am doing well. I do not have a immediate or close relatives in that area. However, it is shocking. And we are all affected emotionally because of this devastating, most devastating earthquake in the known history of Turkey. Mm. And we know aftershocks continue in the region. What's the situation in Turkey and Syria right now? Uh, very hard. The, there are some logistic problems because, the, as you know, the, some of the bridges, even one of the airports were destroyed. So people are trying to go there to help. As far as I know, more than 50,000 people on the ground trying to help and others are ready to go. But there are also some logistic problems, as you can imagine. So how is the community here in San Diego coping with this tragedy? Well, we have several members who have their close relatives, their immediate uh, family. Uh, they cannot hear from them. Some of them are lost. Uh, that means that they are under the, you know, the uh, you know, collapsed building somewhere, it may be. So they are really worried. This is emotionally very hard uh, for all of us, even though if we do not have any immediate family, you can imagine the tragedy of the of this devastating uh, situation. And, you know, you mentioned the airports being down. I mean, have people been able to even reach their loved ones in the area hit by the earthquake? It is really hard. Some of them through the through the channels, other channels, other relatives. They did reach them uh, indirectly, but uh, as you can imagine, it is not easy to just pick up your phone and call them there because of the, all the problems uh, caused by the earthquake. So, so we are trying to reach uh, our members ourselves to, for the emotional support for them. In fact, 
We have planned a big get together at Balboa Park this weekend, Saturday morning. We are going to be there early, but we believe everybody will be there around 10, 30, 11 uh, in Balboa Park at House of Turkey Cottage. You touched on this earlier, but again, I would imagine it's hard to even get aid to people uh, with with crumbling infrastructure, uh, airports being down. What are you hearing about that? Yes, as you said, there are logistics problems. Everybody is doing their best, but, uh, you know, sending something from here to there is, uh, you know, it will take time. So what we are doing for that, we heard from other uh, organizations that easiest way to reach them is via monetary donations because money travels fastest. And that is what we are doing here in our community. Have cold temperatures complicated things there? Yes, uh, it is middle of winter. This is an area that is not a mild uh, winter type of area. So it is it is very cold and people are really suffering. They are, uh, they are really suffering from the cold and, and, and uh, everybody is trying to get them some winter clothes, uh, different things because their houses are destroyed. So that is big, one of the biggest challenge with this earthquake. And so right now, given all of that, the best way for people to help is to send money, you say. Um, before we go, can you once again tell us about the gathering at the House of Turkey this Saturday? Yes, uh, we are going to get together uh, Saturday with all of our members and also other Turkish organizations in the area. There is Bridge to Turkey, uh, another group, and ATA SC San Diego, American Turkish Association. With all those people, we will get together at House of Turkey this Saturday about 11 a.m. And everybody welcome to join us. We will continue our fundraising. We already started fundraising. And because of our generous donations, we are matching to first $15,000. And we are very close uh, to that. We are, we are moving real fast. If anybody wants to help, there is a page specifically for earthquake donations at houseofturkey.org website. I've been speaking with Ali Karan, president of the House of Turkey. And Ali, you all are certainly in our thoughts. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you for covering this very important story. Rescue efforts from around the globe have been mobilized in Turkey. Here now to talk about what this kind of international rescue work entails is San Diego Fire Department Battalion Chief Adi Barbat. He is program manager of the Urban Search and Rescue California Task Force 8 team. Chief Barbat, welcome to Midday Edition. Thank you for having me. Can you talk about what happens when there is a natural disaster of this magnitude? What's the protocol for search and rescue teams? Usually an order comes in either by the president, the mayors, or the governors to request an emergency. And once those orders come in, we get, for our team, we get a presidential order through FEMA. FEMA then notifies and alerts the task forces for deployment purposes. Uh, Depending on the situation and how many resources they need, they'll notify a certain amount of teams, or they may even notify all the teams. Uh, There are 28 teams here in the United States 
that do this type of work that responds to disasters anywhere that, that we are requested. As someone who has experienced search and rescue work after a disaster, what are you thinking about as the days pass after the earthquake in Turkey and Syria? The biggest thing that's on our mind all the time is life safety, Uh, trying to get there as quick as we can to prevent loss and do the most amount of good as quick as we possibly can. Uh, Time is of the essence uh, in any type of disaster, not just an earthquake that we respond to 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 try to save lives. Um, uh, Every situation is going to be different. People can be trapped. They may have void spaces or areas that they may be able to move around or have water or be able to breathe or get some fresh air. And there are situations where people won't have that. And for them and those individuals, uh, we need to get there as quick as possible to be able to help. Are there plans to send your team to Turkey? As far as my team, uh, we're always on standby. Our team and all the other teams are always available at a moment's notice to be able to respond at any time. Uh, Disasters happen just like this earthquake at a moment's notice uh, with no signs. So for us, we're ready and on standby if if we are requested. As far as if we are going to be requested, that is still unknown. Uh, Two teams did get requested already, um, our international team, and those teams are already uh, on the road to help with uh, rescue and recovery efforts. I mean, how quickly can the Task Force 8 search and rescue team be ready to go? Our team can be ready to go out the door, uh, depending what they're requesting, from two to four hours. Talk about the expertise of the Task Force 8 team and how the team can help in disasters like this. Yeah, so our team is comprised of a total of 220 members built out in three different rosters, and we rotate our rosters. There are 70 to 80 person rosters uh, that will go out the door, depending on the situation and what is being requested. Uh, within that team, what's comprised of our team is a search component that has uh a search team manager that manages a set of canines, usually at least four canines will go out the door, and two uh, technical search specialists that will operate cameras and listening devices, as well as a rescue team that goes out the door that's comprised of four squads and two rescue team managers, as well as two heavy equipment operators and riggers. Uh, We have a hazmat component uh, that goes out the door, Uh, with the team. We have a medical component that goes out the door and the medical component consists of two emergency room or trauma doctors, uh, as well as medical specialists, which are paramedics here in the city, uh, that have a higher level of training to be able to do a little more than what we normally do here in our normal city operations. Uh, We have a logistics component. Uh, We have structural specialists, communication specialists, planning team members, as well as our task force leaders and safety officers that all deploy. So that 80-person team consists of a different amount of number of personnel within that to be able to go out the door and do everything we could do here within the city and be self-sufficient out in the field. It must also be emotional work. Yes, it's it's definitely emotional when you're out there. Uh, our, our job and what we signed up to do and have been sworn to do is protect life and property. Get out there, do the most good as quick as we can and save lives. Um, so when there's times that that isn't possible due to timing and how long people may have been trapped or just due to the actual situations that have occurred in, in that disaster environment, uh, it 
it, it does take a toll on our uh, personnel, um, both mentally and health wise. And, and we're constantly um, as a team and our task force leaders look, looking out for our members, uh, ensuring that they're taken care of, constantly talking and communicating, uh, meeting on a regular basis. And, and if we need um we do have um, our health and safety office that has uh, crisis team members. And some of our members that are a part of our team are also trained uh, for crisis and peer support to be able to help those uh, members when we're out there in the field. So we're constantly following up with our members and checking up on them when we're out in the field to, to, to ensure they're taken care of and that they're doing the right thing. So, so some of that stuff does not affect them as days go on. I've been speaking with the San Diego Fire Department Battalion Chief, A.D. Barbat. Chief Barbat, thanks for all of the work you do, and thanks for talking with us today. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. It was an honor. Hey, hey, hey. This is Parker Edison, host of the Parker Edison Project on KPBS cool thing about joining KPBS is you make one simple donation and that money ripples into supporting everything else you see and hear on KPBS, including podcasts like this one you're listening to right now, making a place for fresh voices and perspectives to be heard. And that's music to my ears. Become a member today. Just go to kpbs.org, click that blue give now button and donate what you can. All right. Thanks. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. Last night, President Joe Biden spoke to a largely unmasked standing room only crowd for his annual State of the Union address, the first under newly relaxed COVID guidelines. His speech covered a lot, but one topic that didn't get as much attention as in recent years was COVID. Here's some of what Biden had to say about the coronavirus. While the virus is not gone, thanks to the resilience of the American people and the ingenuity of medicine, We've broken the COVID grip on us. COVID deaths are down by 90%. We've saved millions of lives and opened up our country. We opened our country back up. And soon we'll end the public health emergency. Along with the Biden administration's decision to end the federal public health emergency for COVID in May, state and San Diego County officials are ending their own state of emergencies at the end of February. So what will these changes mean for COVID and how we continue to live with it? Here to help us understand where things are with coronavirus today, I'm joined by our regular guest, Dr. Eric Topol, director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla. And Dr. Topol, welcome back. Thanks, Jade. Always great to be with you, especially now because things are looking good. Yeah, exactly. But still a lot to talk about. So I got to ask, what was your reaction to President Biden's words on COVID-19 last night? Well, I was a bit surprised. Uh, First of all, he never mentioned this thing called long COVID that we've talked about where millions of Americans who were previously healthy are suffering. Uh, the chronic form of COVID after an infection. Uh, so this is something that is continues to be ignored. Uh, then also, of course, the fact that you mentioned, you know, I, there was only one person, as far as I know, that had a mask on of the, of the Congress, Senator Sanders. And there are many people of advanced age in our Congress. So there isn't 
any precautions that are really being taken uh, at large. And I'm not sure that we should just try to will it away. So there's some things here that are uh, a paradox. Whereas President Biden said the virus is still circulating, there some of the hits and some of the precautions uh, weren't really reviewed at all. I mean, how should we view COVID-19 and the threat it poses? Well, the threat is certainly less now. In San Diego County, it's as good as it's looked for quite a uh, long time. That is, you know, hospitalizations and ICUs are down to almost a nadir since the pandemic began. It's hard to track cases because people don't have central reporting. They're many, many doing home tests. But wastewater surveillance looks fairly good. And we have gotten through this latest variant, XBB15, pretty well. So it looks good. There's still virus out there, though. So if you don't take any precautions, you're, you're still got a chance of getting it and suffering potential uh, a significant uh, COVID infection. So uh, it's not going away anytime soon. We still have a risk, of course, for new variants uh, to form. So far in China, where obviously there's a big uh, outbreak throughout the huge country, there hasn't been any new variants found yet. That's encouraging too. But uh, we still have that threat in the months and even years ahead of us. Uh, you know, do you expect a slowdown of cases as we enter into the spring months and on to the summer? Does the weather even matter? Well, our weather is quite favorable. So you know, we've always had an edge compared to other parts of the country, fortunately. If things continue as they are right now, we've just faced a really tough variant and not seen, you know, much of an effect. So this, this is really encouraging. And unless something new comes along that's even worse, particularly a whole new family of variants beyond Omicron, which we've been facing for well over a year now, we should be in a pretty good steady state. You know, that term endemic is often used when we don't have big surges. Let's hope that's the case. But, you know, there's still a liability, Jay, that that will run into a a whole new family of variants. And it could happen this year and it, it could happen beyond that. And we've seen local testing scaled back. What impact do you think the closure of local testing centers will have on uh, transmission around here? I mean, and, and will home tests fill the gap? Well, home tests are mainly filling the gap. But one of the problems, of course, with the change of the emergency status in May forthcoming by the government, uh, dropping the emergency uh, classification is a lot of things are going to be withdrawn, like the the free testing and support that we've had across the board. So, yes, rapid tests at home uh, certainly are helpful, but some of the surveillance tactics that we've had, we're going to be uh, at a loss for. You've talked a lot about the bivalent boosters and their effectiveness, particularly in older age groups and those with comorbidities. What's the status with the boosters? Are enough of the people in those high-risk groups getting it at this point? Of the people who are age 65 and older around the country, we're about four, just over 40%. It should be as close to 100%. So it's a big gap. And there's certainly good data to support age 50 and older for the bivalent booster. So for people who haven't had that, it would be of real benefit uh, because it adds protection against hospitalizations, against deaths, and probably also against long COVID too. For people younger than age 50, there's still benefit all the way down, you know, through all adults, so all age 18 or even lower. It's just that the benefit is not as absolute 
impressive. So that's where people have to make their own decisions. The other thing, of course, as we've reviewed, things are looking quite good right now. So to be able to use the bivalent booster for added protection uh, against severe COVID, uh, people are just not going to be as likely. We see much more interest in the bivalent or any boosters when we're in trouble, which is not a good thing because, you know, by the time uh, there's an outbreak in a region, it takes a couple of weeks for a booster to really kick in. So you'd like to be ahead of things. Uh, but right now, things look pretty good. Uh, and for those people, certainly over age 65 or age 50, if they haven't had a bivalent, they're out more than four to six months from their latest shot, this would be helpful. You know, earlier you mentioned long COVID and its dangers. There's been some recent work looking into its connection to chronic fatigue syndrome. Tell us more about that and what we've been learning. Well, there is certainly an overlap of these two. That is, some people who are suffering from long COVID uh, fit in with the pattern of chronic uh, myeloencephalitis and uh, chronic fatigue syndrome. There is an overlap. Uh, there are things that are, are seen in long COVID that are not necessarily seen with ME-CFS. But one of the things that's notable, Jade, is that ME-CFS was neglected for years, even decades, uh, as a post-viral syndrome. But because so many millions of people have been affected by long COVID, it's been brought back to the light. And hopefully both of these uh, syndromes, we're going to come up with effective treatments. Right now, the best treatment we have is to prevent COVID because then you don't have to worry about long COVID. I mean, you know, are we at a point where the doctors we see actually know and understand the long-term impacts of COVID? Unfortunately not. Three years in is not necessarily enough time to know about the long-term hit of COVID. So in the 1918 influenza epidemic that killed a massive amount of deaths were a sequela, but it wasn't recognized that Parkinson's disease was a late sequela until at least 15 to 20 years later. So there's still some things about not just long COVID that we've already known and seen, uh, which can affect virtually any system of the body. But there are still potentially things that we won't be able to piece together until we have even longer follow-up or 10, 15, 20 years out. So this is the biggest legacy of COVID beyond the deaths and hospitalizations, all the morbidity, mortality, is the people that have had a chronic impact, whether they have symptoms now or whether they develop something later. These are the, basically, Jay, the known unknowns that we still have to keep uh, under surveillance. Seems like reason to not completely let your guard down with this. We never want to do that. We just have to be thankful right now that things are in a good place. But this is a really tough virus that is able to find, you know, cells of almost every part of our body. This is one of the things going back to the State of the Union address. I think it would have been appropriate to uh, call out that long COVID is an unresolved issue. We have no treatment. Uh, and we really have to go after this. We have no blood test. So this is the one thing right now that deserves considerable attention. And another reason to not let your guard down, because there's still a risk of that. There still are people that are getting COVID now in recent weeks and months that are suffering from the long-term effects. I've been speaking with Dr. Eric Topol, director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla. Dr. Topol, as always, thanks for talking with us today. Oh, thanks so much, Jane. 
It's well known that fentanyl is finding its way into any number of drugs being used on the street, leading to an increase in overdoses and deaths in the past few years. But a recent L.A. Times investigation has found that a high number of pills purchased legally in Mexican pharmacies contained fentanyl, methamphetamine, and other illicit substances in them. L.A. Times reporter Carrie Blakinger joins us now with more on the startling discovery. Carrie, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Just for a little bit of background, what led you to do this reporting? I mean, have there been any suspicions about the contents of drugs found in Mexican pharmacies? This is not something that I think had really been on the radar. We got a tip about it. So we decided to do some testing and also found out that around the same time, there was a group of researchers that were looking into this as well. And you actually had the drugs tested. I mean, how did you go about that? And and what did you find? We tested drugs using the test strips that you can, you know, order online, for instance. We got fentanyl test strips and we got methamphetamine test strips, and we used those to test the samples that we had. Now, using that testing method, like, it is possible to come up with false positives if you're, uh, you know, typically if you use too much of a sample or if there's cross-contamination or things like that. And, you know, we talked to some researchers and experts in this to make sure that we were doing it, you know, the, the best that it could be done. But fortunately, because there happened to be a team of researchers that was also uh, doing the same sort of testing, but they were using both the test strips and an infrared spectrometer, there was, you know, some additional testing that has been done that also found these same sorts of things. So between the two of us, there's been, you know, a decent amount of, of testing done in a variety of pharmacies. Uh, we ended up testing, I, I think it was a total of something like 17 pills, and the research team ended up testing around 45. So, you know, obviously this is a sampling in, all, all of this was in northwestern Mexico. We, you know, we don't know how broadly this is happening or, you know, if this is happening across the country. Anecdotally, we've heard some things, but from what we've been able to get from that amount of testing, you know, we found that it certainly seems to be happening in multiple locations in northwestern Mexico. I mean, how unprecedented are these findings? Besides what you've already mentioned, you know, are there any other studies or reports out there that underline what you found? You know, I haven't seen any sort of deep dives into this, but if you look through clips, you can see some sort of hints at it. Like, for instance, I think there was like a DEA press release at one point or a DOJ press release about a pharmacist being arrested for selling counterfeit oxycodone. I was reading about that and it seems to imply that this might have been being sold out of a pharmacy. You know, it, it's not, it didn't seem like this is something that has been documented as occurring in multiple locations, even though there's been a few individual um, references to it sort of buried on the internet. I mean, let's let's talk about this. I mean, are pharmacy workers selling these drugs with the knowledge that they may contain illicit substances and are people buying them as such? I think that in terms of whether the pharmacy workers know, that's probably a mixed bag. There are some that seem to have some sense of it because they warned us repeatedly uh, that, you know, this pill was particularly strong or something like that. But, you know, it, when people are buying these, these are made to look like something else. Like they are made to look like legitimate Percocets. Like they are made to look like, you know, the M30 blue oxycodones that you would find here. You know, the Adderall were made to look like 30 milligram Adderall. There are red flags though. Like these aren't drugs that are supposed to be sold over the counter. 
in Mexico. Oxycodone is actually fairly tightly controlled there uh, relative to the U.S. And Adderall is also relatively difficult to get compared to the U.S. So these are drugs that you should not be expecting to just walk in a store and buy over the counter. Although Mexican pharmacies are known for the array of things they sell over the counter, those things are not legally to include oxycodone and Adderall. And when you go into some of these stores, the ones that sold us drugs that were not what they said they were seemed to be stores that were catering to tourists, to Americans. And they would often, you know, greet us in English, give prices in dollars. Um, and they were in areas that were frequented by tourists, typically. I mean, so how are these drugs laced with fentanyl and meth ending up in legitimate pharmacies? So it seems that, uh, you know, from the experts we interviewed, it seems like this is likely coming from cartels. Cartels have been making counterfeit pills that are actually fentanyl, and they've been doing this for some time, but they've just usually been things that you would buy on the street. And that's why you've seen all of these warnings about, you know, not to just buy pills on the street. And that's why you see this sort of increase in fentanyl-related deaths. Some of this is people who are buying pills on the street. And so it sort of is not surprising that these would at some point start showing up in other places, including pharmacies. But, you know, it's the same thing. Like, it's still coming from cartels who, you know, what it comes down to is that it is cheaper for cartels to sell pills that are simply fentanyl and filler than it is for them to sell legitimate oxycodone that's been diverted or to make their own oxycodone or to sell heroin. And, you know, because of the economics of it, that's why it's ended up contaminating so much of the street supply. And it is also why it's not entirely surprising that it might eventually start showing up in pharmacies. Yeah, I mean, but explain that more. How are the cartels able to push these pills into pharmacies? From the experts that we've talked to about this, it's likely that this could work in the way that a pharmacy owner would purchase the drugs from some sort of middleman or supplier. And they might know that they are not coming from like legitimate sources, but they might not be aware that they're actually entirely counterfeit. They might just believe that they're buying oxycodone that were diverted from legitimate supplies, for instance. You write that it's hard uh, to get an accurate count on drug-related deaths in Mexico. Why is that? Yeah, that was an incredibly interesting thing that I was not quite aware of. Um, Mexico has undercounted drug-related deaths for some time. In 2020, for instance, I think there was something like 19 opioid-related deaths in the entire country. And although it is true that Mexico has typically had a lower rate of opioid use, than the U.S., that is still something that most experts flagged as being extraordinarily, uh, sort of unbelievably low. And part of the reason for that, according to the experts that we interviewed, is that because of the influx of homicides and cartel-related deaths, those have ended up overwhelming the forensic services there and other deaths, such as drug-related deaths, don't get the sort of intense scrutiny that they might otherwise. And instead, it ends up being often just marked down to something else like cardiopulmonary arrest or something very broad like that. You know, are you aware of any other health consequences for people who have unknowingly taken drugs purchased in Mexican pharmacies laced with fentanyl or other drugs? Anecdotally, we've had some people reach out to us since the story came out and, you know, said that they've had experiences where they bought something that they thought was, you know, a Percocet or something and had some sort of adverse reaction. So, you know, we've we've anecdotally heard these things, but 
given the difficulties with the data, it's it's really hard to say in uh, any sort of definitive way how broadly there have or have not been any sort of negative impacts. And, you know, remember, we also don't know how broadly this is occurring. We found it at several pharmacies and the UCLA researchers found it at several pharmacies, but there hasn't been a sort of broader look at where else this is occurring or even what percent of the pharmacies in the cities that we visited are actually doing this. That's what's going to be my next question is how prevalent is it even in Mexico? I do want to say we did not visit like the large pharmacy chains. We were doing this at independence at like mom and pop shops. So if you're going to one of the large chains, like we didn't find any reason to doubt the safety of the medications that you would purchase there. You know, I don't want to sort of cast broad aspersions on Mexican pharmacies or anything. The places where we did find this happening there were definitely red flags. I just think that until now, people didn't know that those red flags could actually signal something as dangerous as fentanyl. What have you heard from U.S. and Mexican authorities about what you've learned? Very little so far. You know, we, we did not get any sort of meaningful or substantive comment from the U.S. government. And I think we haven't gotten anything at all from the Mexican government yet. But we're, we're still trying to see if we can get any sort of response from some authorities after the fact. We have gotten a little more concerned response from lawmakers here, some of whom have, you know, asked about investigations or like, should there be some sort of legislation that could address this? I'm not sure what that could possibly look like since this is something that's happening, you know, in another country. But as of now, I think we've, we've gotten very little feedback from authorities on this. So bottom line this for me for anyone picking up prescriptions in Mexico. If you are buying a single pill of a prescription that you probably shouldn't be able to get, something like oxycodone or Adderall, and you're doing it without a prescription, you should be very wary of that. And if you're going to do that, uh, you should at the very minimum bring along test strips to make sure that it's not something far more dangerous than what you're expecting. I've been speaking with LA Times reporter Carrie Blakinger. Carrie, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thanks for having me. San Diego researchers have identified a new species of fish in the deep ocean waters near Costa Rica. KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson says an underwater video and some detective work gained the rare fish a scientific identity. Researchers were looking for large ocean mussels when they sent a robotic submarine 6,000 feet under the ocean surface. The target was the Heco Scar near Costa Rica. Uh, Charlotte Seed is the collection manager for benthic invertebrates at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. It's an area where methane is coming up from the seafloor, but at a slightly higher temperature than the rest of the ocean, which apparently is enough to attract animals that normally only like it hot at hydrothermal vents. The researcher piloting the Schmidt Ocean Institute's unstaffed submersible has been here before, and it didn't take long to find prime mussel habitat among a minivan-sized tangle of worm shells. Seed points out the tangled habitat anchored on the seafloor in the video recorded by the dive team. This is a fantastic uh, group of tube worms. So these animals, each one... Uh, looks sort of like a piece of pasta, but they're growing together 
Uh, they're anchored in the sediment. They're getting energy from the chemicals and the microbes that live inside their tubes. Uh, and it's a great place to be a tube worm. Look at all of them. It's also where the team recorded video of the newly identified and pink eel pout. The color doesn't mean much on the ocean floor where it's cold and dark. There's probably no need for it to look especially flashy or to have extraordinary camouflage. The fish looks like a small eel, and some species have a downturned mouth, reminding some of a sad, pouting fish. Well, you can see they don't move very fast. They don't go too far from their homes. Right back into shelter. Seed says the fish lives on the ocean floor, and while the pink fish stands out on video, that color really can't be seen in the dark water. And they also haven't been seen outside of this geographically specific underwater habitat. Ben Frabel is the manager of one of the world's largest marine vertebrate collections located in San Diego. This section is kind of the group of fish, eel pouts, and their relatives. Uh, so as you can see, we have quite a lot of different species. He's showing us what's best described as a fish library. The shelves, floor to ceiling, are full of underwater creatures perfectly preserved in sealed jars. This was Frabel's first stop to identify the samples brought back by researchers in 2018. Since the samples didn't match up with anything, Frabel turned to published literature. I've taken a look, I'm going through the books, going through references, trying to match them up. They're not really resonating with anything I'm seeing. So Frabel reached out to a colleague in Denmark. Peter Raskmuller is the curator of the Danish Natural History Museum, and he's considered an authority on deep-sea bottom-living fishes. He immediately recognized it as this genus that has only been described in the last 20 years. It's called pyrolycus. It means pyro, fire, lycus, wolf. Raskmuller knew immediately the fish was something new. Frabel says that helps explain the lack of scales and the number and location of sensory pores on their bodies. Those pores are key to helping the fish find food. These animals are living in environments that are pitch black, so they're kind of relying on not just their eyes, but other, other organs for, for sensing movement and prey and food around them, so these are really important. There are only four samples available to researchers, two in San Diego and two in Denmark, and Frabel says it's a reminder of how little scientists know about life on the ocean floor. Findings are published in the current edition of the journal Zootaxia. Eric Anderson, KPBS News. Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. Black Comics Day returns to the World Beat Cultural Center this weekend for its fifth year. The free mini convention celebrates black creators and artists from Marvel and DC, as well as black-owned independent companies. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando speaks with the event's founder, Keithan Jones, who is also the creator of the Power Knights comic. Keithan, you are about to hold the fifth Black Comics Day, so how do you feel right now? I feel excited. Five years is, wow. I mean, um, when I first started out on this, I didn't expect it. Well, I was hoping it, 
it would go this far, but you know, you never know. So here we are, fifth year. And remind people what inspired you to start this. I was originally asked by my mother if I would do something for the Malcolm X Library, which was the original location. I was going to say no, but then I thought about how important it could be to the community to have an outlet where they can actually see people that look like them doing stuff in the comic book culture. I mean, we're all going to the movies right now, but this is an opportunity to see the folks behind the scenes and then having it be uh, Black History Month, I think the icing on the cake is to see actual folks from our community working for companies like Marvel and DC and Warner Brothers and Disney and all that good stuff. Even though it's called Black Comics Day, it's for everyone to come and enjoy this cultural experience and see these folks do their thing. And you yourself are a comics creator, so where are you at now? Because you started your own company and you had your own comic. Kid Comics, which stands for The Kid in You Never Dies, is still going strong. Uh, my book, The Power Knights, earlier this year I relaunched it. I remastered it, actually. I remastered it. Because what I want to do is release all the issues as a trade paperback. But I wanted to like clean it up a little bit, give it a new paint job, so to speak, add some extras. And so that's where I am with that. issue. The new issue one is out on kid-comics.com. And what kind of challenges do you face trying to publish your own comic? Time, because I don't, not only do I work, work for myself and, and, and keep this company going, I also have clientele that want my services as a comic book artist. Basically, that helps funds kid comics. So it's really my biggest challenge is just balancing the time to do everything and put on this show. And explain to people what they can expect when they come to Black Comics Day. They can expect to meet professional artists from uh, African descent, folks like John Jennings, who just actually launched a new series for Marvel for Silver Surfer, Ghostlight. We have Rodney Barnes. Rodney Barnes is doing this fantastic book called Philadelphia. It's a horror anthology. And along with TV shows like uh, Winning Time for HBO Max, and he's worked on Boondocks. And then we have Kevin Grievox is the writer for the Underworld uh, movie series with the Vampires and Werewolves Battle, which is one of my favorite movies. He's done a slew of Marvel and DC Comics. He's also an actor. We're gonna do a pan I'm gonna do a panel with all three of those guys on Sunday and we're gonna discuss their projects. And the, thing, the common thing they have to, and, uh, with each other is that they're aficionados in horror. So we're gonna get into the whole uh, a panel called Sh uh, Get Shook, and we're gonna talk some horror and a little bit about their background and how they're uh, navigating that. And Empowered Panel is about, we do Empowered every, every Black conversation. It's hosted by Aaron Nebels, and he has a podcast called uh, Hall H Podcast. What I want to do with the, the panel, which is Saturday, Call Empowered, I want to discuss the whole topic of diversity in pop culture and comics and how we feel about it. Because there's always controversy when a new movie comes out and, the, and a black person's casted or recasted as a um, traditional white character. We want to delve into the controversy behind that, the pros and the cons, and if that's the right direction or not. On the panel, we have Robert Roach, we have Brian Lambert, we have Mia Bunn, and Christina Cromer, and they're all comic book creators themselves. We're gonna basically get their opinion on it, and I think it'll be a great panel, and, and it should be pretty fun, and also we um, welcome audience involvement. And Black Comics Day is not just panels. People can also come in and 
meet the writers, the creators, buy comics, and engage with them. Exactly. It's, uh, it's an open atmosphere. It's for all ages. Out here on the main floor with the, inside of the World B Center, um, the majority of the artists set up at their booths where you can congregate with them, see their merchandise, buy their merchandise, ask them questions. And young artists, I encourage you to bring your portfolios if you want some feedback or who knows, you could lead to a job. It's going to be fun. It's a great atmosphere. There's food here on site. I think the food is great. Makeda Dred Cheatham, who, who owns the place, she's a tremendous help. She's, she provides the space for me to do my thing. And like, you know, we've been doing this five years now and uh, still going strong and it's getting, it's gotten bigger every year. And as a comics creator, what is important to you to write about and to do stories about? I'm the type of writer that I don't like to hit people over the head with messaging. I like to weave it within, within the story in an organic way. And I like to keep it open for interpretation. Obviously, I'm a black writer, and I'm concerned about my community, and I want to represent us in a good light. But my first priority is to be an entertainer. I want to entertain you. I want to... I know, you know, I want you to come home from your hard day of work and escape into, uh, into another world and be entertained by it. And if you can get some type of message out of it, awesome, you know, because the message is in there. But like I said, I don't want it to be the only reason that I wrote the book. You know, I'm just, you know, I come from watching Star Wars and Transformers and, and, and G.I. Joe and all that stuff, you know, Terminator, Predator. I'm that guy, you know, so that's my vein. That's the type of stuff I want to do. And Power Nights is something I created when I was a kid. So I figured, you know, I'm in my 50s now. So I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to think too hard about changing my thought process on this and just try to at least as close as possible and still make it make sense, I make Power Nights what I envisioned as a kid. And, but that's not to say that um, there's times where I do want to get into some heavier subject matter because, like I said, it, it's important to me. And, um, and that's, the, that's the reason I created Black Comics Day because, like I said earlier, Black Comics Day is my statement when it comes to race relations, when it comes to um, civil rights, when it comes to social commentary on what's going on in the world today. Black Comics Day is my idea of getting everyone together in one space from all cultures, all races, and co-mingle and have a good time and see that we all like the same kind of things and we don't have to be at each other's necks 24-7. You can do that on Twitter or Facebook. Time out this weekend, come into this place and, and be welcomed and have a good time. The real energy is just when everyone gets here and, and you have like-minded people co-mingling feeding off each other's energy and just having a good time. So you just have to come down here and experience it. I promise you, you will have a good time. That was Beth Accomando speaking with Keith and Jones. Black Comics Day takes place this Saturday and Sunday at the World Beat Cultural Center in Balboa Park. It is free, and Beth is also producing a three-part podcast starting tonight featuring the Black Horror Comics creators from the Get Shooked panel. That's on the Cinema Junkie podcast, which you can find at kpbs.org or wherever you listen to podcasts.